Man, I'm so, so glad that you're here. Um, I'm excited to jump into God's Word. Why don't you grab your Bible, head to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, we are continuing in a series we started last week called Legacy. Legacy. And we are walking in a season as a church. If you're a guest with us and you're not sure whatever, what, what, what's going on, we are stepping into a season as a church where God is calling us to take some steps of faith right now. I want to tell you, God has been at work in this place for the last seven years. We became a campus uh, seven years ago, and in that time, we've seen God save 500 plus people in this place. In that time, we've seen over 600 people baptized. We've seen God put his, and listen, that's not a pat ourselves on the back. That's a, I can't believe God pours out his favor like that. That's unbelievable that he would pour out. There are churches that won't see that in 50 years, and God has done that work here. And that's not the work of man, and no person can take credit for it. That is God's favor and his hand on a place. That's all it is. It's God dwelling and God changing and calling and shaping our hearts. But with all of that, with the families that God has entrusted to us and and continues to bring, it's brought us to, I think, the most important moment in our campus life since we became a campus seven years ago. And that's this moment where we are now stepping into a place where we are going to decide what is our future and our legacy going to look like. What's the next 20 or 25 years going to look like here? How far is our reach going to go? How deep is our impact going to be? If God's called us to make disciples of those 500 people who've come to faith, how in the world do we do that? How do we do that faithfully? How do we accommodate? So we're looking to step into building a worship center, expanding our life group space, um, because God has called us not to be church attenders, but to be disciple makers. Amen? He has called us to be disciples who make disciples and teach others how to walk faithfully and to make disciples. And so we're at a place where we're asking the question, okay, God, if that's the legacy you're calling us to leave and to invest in, what does that look like? Because I've come to the reality as I hold all these things together and our elders have prayed and, and Pastor Ben and I have sought the Lord, we have come to a very clear reality. You heard me say it last week. You'll hear me say it again several times, which it is this. Now is the time. Now is the time. And we're ready for this. Now is the time. And we're ready for this. Um, I was thinking about that, that phrase, and I was remembering back to when I was a kid to a moment that I missed. Um, I, I, I have at home, and I meant to bring it, I have at home the very first uh, buck I ever shot. It was super impressive. It was a tiny little spike, about this big, right? <laughs> Barry, it was a little guy. It was a tiny little, now he was delicious, I'll tell you that, but he was a little guy. He was a little fella, right? And I remember, it was very excited, uh, and I still have it. I have this thing, some 35, 37 years later, I've still got him at my house. Um, and, but I remember thinking, as I was thinking this week, I had this thought, he was not supposed to be my first buck. That is not what my first buck should have been. Because a week or two before I killed Bambi with horns, um, my dad and I were hunting one evening. I was about nine, maybe ten. Uh, we're sitting in the stand. 
It's late in the evening. It's uh, probably negative 40 degrees, probably. It was freezing. Uh, it was dark. I was thinking about uh, food and comfort and blankets and food. And um, my dad was a little bit more devoted uh, to the art of just staying in the woods, and we just stay here until we're not going to, we're not leaving until something, until uh, a mammal is dead. And so, uh, <laughs> so here we are, it's dark, I'm freezing, and all of a sudden my dad hears, he hears the buck coming, right? And he sees him and hears him way before I do, and he, and he starts to tell me, Matt, that's a big one, here he comes. All right, he's coming up over here from the left. And then I hear him say, oh, man, that is a big one. It's a little like probably an eight, an eight, a good eight point, right? And out here in East Texas, that's a great, it's a, it's a big deer. And he goes, okay, okay. Now, I know everything in my dad wanted to snatch that little 243 short stock rifle out of my hands and shoot him himself. I know he did, but he was trying to be super sweet, right? It's like, okay, here he comes. And as he came through, um, he's walking in front of us, 75, 80 yards, and over and over again, my dad's going, okay, you got him? You see him? You see him in the scope? Yeah, yeah, okay, now, go, right? Okay, okay, now, shoot, right? Okay, he's going to come on the other side of this tree. Okay, now, now's the time, shoot, go, right? And my dad was a very confident hunter, a very confident marksman. I was not. I was a little guy. And for me, I was sitting here going, I, I can't shoot yet. He's moving. He won't stop moving, right? I wanted. <laughs> now, when I say moving, I don't mean running. I mean he was on a gentle walk through our back meadow, right? But he wouldn't stop moving. And I was going, no, I, need, I needed all the conditions to be perfect. I needed him to stop moving. I needed him to stand broadside at 50 yards, and I needed him to look away so we didn't have to make eye contact when I did this, <laughs> Right? Look that direction, stand perfectly still, and please don't make a sound because I need to sleep tonight and I don't want you in my nightmares. That's where I was. <laughs> he never stopped. And over and over again, okay, now, now, shoot, now. And he just walked away. <laughs> and I know there was that moment with my dad behind me where he, you know, dads, you know those moments where you have to have a conversation with yourself before you talk to your children? because you don't want them to know how disappointed you are in them. Um, and he, I know he was doing a lot of self-talk, right? And he goes, that's okay. There'll be more. And I was like, no, there won't. I'll never see another. And the next weekend, I killed little guy, right? And the opportunity just walked away from me. And the reason the opportunity walked away from me is because I didn't want to step out unless all the conditions were perfect the way I wanted them. Family, we are at a place right now where God is calling us to take some steps of faith and to step out in faith. And this isn't about, okay, we've got to wait for us to feel like every, we got to wait till all our perfect conditions are met and it's exactly the way we want. If we wait for that, it'll never happen and the moment will walk away. This is a moment that we can miss. We can miss it. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. So we looked last week at uh, what it looked like to leave a legacy of faithfulness. And we did this by looking at 1 Chronicles 28, 
where David is handing over the reins of the kingship and leadership of the nation to Solomon, and where they're transitioning now of coming out of the, out of the tabernacle, out of the tent, into the temple. They're getting ready to build that. And David looks at his son, Solomon, and in front of the nation, he goes, Solomon, this is going to be hard. There's a lot on the line. The cost is significant. And then he says this at the end of 1 Chronicles 28. But be courageous, be strong, and do it. That's what he tells him. Now we get to verse 29 and we see David not only calls us, God not only calls us to leave a legacy of faithfulness, now he's, we're going to see how in verse chapter 29 he's calling us to leave a legacy of generosity. So 1 Chronicles 29, again, they're stepping into this moment where they're getting ready to build the temple. And listen, this temple is going to be their legacy for the next 400 years. This building will stand for 400 years. 400 years of God's people worshiping with gratitude for David and his, uh, uh, his generation and their generosity and obedience to God to step out and do this. First Chronicles chapter 29, we'll start in verse 1. If you're there, I want to hear you say, the Bible is true. The Bible is true. Amen. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. That felt like a great boat of confidence, didn't it? Right? <laughs> right in front of everybody. Hey, nation, I just want you to hear me say, uh, Solomon, he has no idea what he's doing. This is going to be real hard. Right? He's young, he's inexperienced, and the work is great. Why? For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God as far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, atimony and colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold of the gold of Ophir and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. And look at this question. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of tribes and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and the officers over the king's work. And they gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver and 18,000 talents of bronze and 100,000 talents of, irons and, of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. And then the people rejoiced. Why? Because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced greatly. Man, what a moment. What a moment. There is this outbreak 
of joy and generosity among God's people in this moment. It's just, just this outbreak that takes place of generosity and joy in God's people. Why? What, what was behind that? What was behind that generosity that caused them to be joyful with their whole hearts? What I want us to see today, if what we desire is to leave a legacy of generosity, and, and that is God's expect, that is His desire for us, there are six markers that are going to define us. Six markers that will define our generosity if we're going to leave a legacy. Here's the first one. A legacy of generosity um, will be a sacrificial generosity. It will be a sacrificial generosity. If you look there at verse 3, notice what David says. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, look at the next phrase, I have a treasure of my own, my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. Now, we're going to look in, in just a moment at what David gave because it was crazy significant and sacrificial. We'll look at that in just a moment. But before we look at what David gave, what we discover in that little verse is how he gave and why he gave. The how and the why of David's generosity are infinitely more important than what he gave because the how he gave and the why he gave revealed the heart from which he gave. New Beginnings, I want you to hear me say this. Um, infinitely more important than what we give is going to be why we give and how we give. Why? Because the why of our generosity is what reveals the heart. The why of our generosity is going to surface our real desires, our real priorities, our, our real passions and our, our motivations and what it is we're actually devoted to. And what I would tell you is, if how we give and why we give are right, I am not worried one bit about what we give. It will also be right. I'm convinced of that. So how did David give? In a word, he gave sacrificially. Sacrificially. He said, I'm giving of my own treasure. The gold and the silver of my own. This is his own, this is his own money, right? David had done a really good job, by the way, as a leader of of stewarding the resources of the people, setting back over the years. You can go back and read throughout First Chronicles the work that he put in to bring them to this moment. But this moment in verse 3 when he says, I am giving my own treasure, that's not the people's money. That's, that's David's money. This was his personal fortune. And most biblical scholars believe that when David says, I have a treasure of my gold and my silver, and I now give it, they believe, knowing David... David, knowing he was at the end of his life and at the end of his kingship, literally emptied out his treasure for the temple. Just literally gave all that he had. Gave it away. And I want to be sure, because in a moment, when we look at how much he gave, it's, it's kind of staggering. But I want you to hear me say this. The reason David gave so much is not because he simply had so much and just had it laying around to spare. 
The reason David gave so much was because of the posture of his heart. He emptied out his treasury because there was a desire to leave a legacy and to maximize his resources for the glory of God. That's why he gave. David had plans for that money, I'm convinced. He had probably saved. He probably wanted to to have a fortune that he gave to his children that would posture them in prosperity for generations after. But the Bible says he gave the treasure. Um, and it wasn't because he just had it laying around. He gave it sacrificially. What's the key word in the word sacrificial? What's the, what's the heart of that word? Sacrifice. We don't like that word. That word's all uncomfortable, right? That's, to be generous in a way that is sacrificial, that has sacrifice in it, that means we're going to give up something we've planned to keep. Are you with me? We're going to give up something we had planned on keeping. It means we're going to say no to things we want in order to say yes for what God wants. That's what, that's what sacrificial generosity is. Sacrificing what might make us happy and comfortable now in order to invest what's going to give joy for generations. That's sacrificial generosity, right? That's how he gave. And that's how God calls us to give, sacrificially. Now let's look at why he gave. I want you to notice a really important word in verse 3. It's the word devotion. You see that word there? You're, depending on your translation, it might say delight. Um, it's the Hebrew word rotza, which literally means delight. It means joy. It means affection. It's a word of love. That's given. So I want you to I want you to see that it's it's critically important that the motivation of David's generosity was not duty, it was not obligation, it was not um, other people's expectations or guilt. His motivation for generosity was his delight in God and his devotion to God. Devotion and delight. These were the things bubbling out of his heart. In this moment when he took his treasury and just pushed it out and goes, there, I'm giving what I've got to the house of my God. And because of my devotion, because of my delight in God, it was his desire. It gave him pleasure. It filled his heart with joy. David's sacrificial generosity had nothing to do with the state of his bank account and everything to do with the posture of his heart. And so here's a man who just pushed it all in. That's how he gave, sacrificially. That's why he gave, out of devotion and delight. It just made him happy. He was so glad to do it. Now let's look at what he gave. Look at verse 4. He says, okay, I'm giving my treasure because of my devotion to God. Verse 4, 3,000 talents of gold. Of the gold of Ophir, seven thousand talents of refined silver for the overlaying, uh, for overlaying the walls of the house. The gold of Ophir, biblical scholars were a little divided. They believed that was a city either in India or in Arabia. They weren't. They were a little divided on where that 
place actually was. What, what they agreed on was at that time, it was the finest gold in the world. It was the most precious stone, the most precious metal, excuse me, in the world. So when David gave the gold of Ophir, he literally gave the highest kind of gold that he could. And it says he gave 3,000 talents of it. You go, well, that, what does that, what's that number mean? Talents was a weight, and it was the equivalent of about 110 tons. Now, anybody want to take a gander at what 110 tons of pure gold is worth in today's market? Just throw a number out. I've already done the math for you. It's worth $6.2 billion. $6.2 billion. Listen, I, I don't really care how rich you are. You feel it when $6 billion leaves your bank account. You know what I mean? You just feel it. You're like, oh, there it goes. Ha <laughs> right? $6 billion? I don't care how rich you are. You're going to feel that. You want to know why? Because sacrificial generosity is generosity that you feel when you give it. It's some, it costs you something to give it. And it's got to be selfless and it has to be filled with faith and it's got to be willing because it has to come from a delight in God. And if you're thinking what I'm thinking, you're like, man, I don't, I've got the kind of money I can't give like that. I've got six billion. I know, me neither. Otherwise, we'd be having this conversation on my yacht right now. <laughs> Big enough for all of us. Be a floating church. That's how I know God can't trust me with real money, because I'm going to do some stupid stuff with it. <laughs> so just hold that number for a minute. Now, God looked on that gift, that offering. But I want you to know God saw that offering as no more valuable and no different and of no more worth to the kingdom than the two copper coins the widow drops in in Mark chapter 12. You remember that moment? Mark chapter 12. Two copper coins. She drops them in. And Jesus says to his disciples, get over here. Come here just a minute. Did you see that? Did you see what she just put in there? Yes, like two copper coins. Jesus said, I want to tell you guys something. That is worth more than the bags of money everybody else is dropping in. Why? Because when she dropped in those two coins, with the, which were worth about a penny, Jesus said, it's worth more than the bags and the bags because she gave all she had. She gave knowing, God, I'm going to put this in, and if you don't meet me here, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And Jesus said, she dropped it. It was all she had. For David and for the widow, that moment of sacrificial generosity was, was, was all their treasure here. Right? David and the widow, they gave because of the posture and the condition of their hearts they gave because of their delight in God. So generosity that leaves a legacy is a sacrificial generosity. We're going to feel it. We're going to feel it. Here's the next thing. Generosity that leaves a legacy is an above and beyond generosity. An above and beyond generosity. Look at verse 5. David says, okay, I'm, I'm giving sacrificially and here's what I'm giving, and he says there at the end of verse 5, Who then 
will offer willingly, consecrating himself to the Lord. And then the leaders of the father's houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and the officers over the king's work. Two phrases I want you to see. First, David asked this question, who will offer willingly? Who will offer willingly? Now, it records for us in this verse that all the leaders gave, but what you find as you go through the rest of 1 Chronicles 29, all the people gave. David said, who will offer willingly? He didn't use guilt. He didn't use fear. He didn't use intimidation. He didn't use shame. He just simply invited the people to see what God was doing. And said, who will offer willingly? Who, who will do this? By the way, fear, guilt, shame, those are terrible motivators for generosity, aren't they? They're terrible motivators. We've all given something out of, out of guilt. And it's a t- you want to know why it's terrible? Because it robs you of the joy that is meant to be yours when you are generous. David just said, who's going to do this willingly, freely, sacrificially. You want to know why? Because generosity is a a heart issue, and that's why you cannot force it. Generosity is an issue of the heart. Generosity is not an issue of the resources. It's an issue of the heart. When David said, who will offer willingly, he was challenging hearts. When we step out in faith to give to the legacy, it is a challenge to our hearts. That's the first phrase, who will offer willingly. Now I want you to notice the second phrase that we see in verse 6, which is, and they made their free will offerings. Now what is that? What's a free will offering? So a free will offering is an offering that is above and beyond the tithe. It's above and beyond the tithe. That's what it is. At this point, when David is standing in front of the nation, the tithe has been a part of their, their obedience to God for about 500 years. They've been, it, that, the tithe was written into the law of Moses, right? The first time we see the tithe is all the way back in Genesis 14 when Abraham gives a tenth, which by the way, that's what the word tithe means. It means a tenth. You see that all the way back in Genesis 14. It's written into the law of Moses. We are in 500 years now of this being a spiritual discipline and, and a response of obedience to God. He causes people to give a tenth of what they have. And so this is not a moment where David says to the people, okay, I know y'all give your tithe, you're doing great. I just want you to stop doing that. Now take your tithe and give it over here to the temple. No. He says, no, you're, you're tithe. This is above and beyond. This is a free will offering. It's why we often use the language tithe and offering, right? Because one of those is the ground floor of generosity. I want you to hear me. Generosity, excuse me, tithing is not the finish line of gospel generosity. It's the starting block. It's not the ceiling, it's the ground floor. Now I say that, and I want to say with that, and many of you have heard me say this before, 
it took Carrie and I way too long to be obedient with our tithe. Way too long. I was being paid by churches to serve God long before I was being obedient to God for me and my family to give a tithe. I'm going to tell you something. That feels super risky to say in front of all you people. But it's true. Early years of our, we've been married 23 years. Those early years, we didn't do this. We didn't see it as the ground floor. The tithe is, it's the starting block of generosity. And so I want to give an initial invitation here. If you look at that and you think, we're not doing that either. And when you say it was hard for y'all, I, I know what you mean. It's hard for us and we're, we're not doing it. And I don't know how to do it. It's, it's going to sound too simple. Just start. Well, it can't be that simple. It is that simple. Well, but I've got 47 different streaming subscriptions. What do I do with that? You know, might have to go, I well, probably don't need all those. David called the people in this moment to an above and beyond generosity. And that's the biblical pattern that you see. The biblical pattern you see is that God's people have a rhythm of tithing, giving the 10%, which is why God says in Malachi, if you don't know that I can bless you and pour out when you give a tithe, he says this, very rarely does God say, put me to the test, but he says it when it comes to our money. Think about that. He doesn't say that about almost anything else. But when it comes to our money, he says, put me to the test. Almost like, I dare you to trust me. I dare you to give 10% and see if I will not peel back blessings you didn't even know I had waiting on you to step out in faith in a moment of obedience. And I'm going to pour them out on you. We don't give to, be, uh, to get something. We give in obedience. But in being obedient and being faithful, God says, I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to show up with you in that moment, and I'm going to start doing things on your behalf, meeting needs on your behalf, and the anxiety and the worry and the strain and that tight-fistedness that you feel because you're scared to death when you look at your bank account, and when you begin to tithe, your hands open. And I'm going to go to war with that anxiety for you because I'm going to change your vision for what I've given you. David didn't call them to just start tithing. He said, no, you've been doing that for 500 years. This is a free will offering. This is above and beyond. Um, the biblical pattern that we see is God's people give their tithe. And then there are seasons, moments that have a beginning and the end. Legacy will have a beginning and an end. Moments where God calls us to a season of sacrificial generosity for a specific purpose that is above and beyond. That's what we see here. Here's the next thing. Generosity that leaves a legacy is going to be a wholehearted generosity. I'm going to start moving here pretty quick. Look at verse 9. Then the people rejoiced. Why? 
because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. Here's the point. Again, this moment of this outbreak of generosity that, that happened in God's people, it wasn't a sense of duty or fear, and it wasn't done out of indifference. It was an act of worship. Wholehearted generosity is an act of worship because it is the overflow of a heart that is wholly devoted to God. It's the overflow. That's why I said last week that the devotion of our heart will determine the degree of our generosity. It will determine that. But when our whole heart engages and, and we open our hands in an overflow of generosity toward God and His mission, it's really just an overflow of love toward God. That's what it is. There is a direct, unbreakable connection between what we offer God and the state of our heart. Right? You guys know there's a, there is a direct, invisible string that forms a straight line between my heart and my wallet. Who knows that to be true? That's why Jesus said, you better put your treasure in your right place. Because where your treasure is, there your right? Which means if I'm closed-handed with my money before God, I'm saying something about what I really think in my heart about God. If, if I'm reluctant to give to the mission of God, I'm saying something about what I really think in my heart about God's mission because there is a direct connection between my heart and my wallet. And that direct connection, that straight line, is the reason we are so sensitive about our money. It's the reason it feels the way it feels in this room, right? We're like, oh, golly, man. Because that line is direct. It's not that God needs our money. God does not call us to seasons of generosity because he's, he's reaching into empty pockets and doesn't know what he's going to do. He calls us to seasons of generosity because he's pursuing hearts. Generosity that leaves a legacy will be a wholehearted generosity. Here's the next thing. By the way, isn't that the standard that God set? For devotion and love for him. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your... That's the standard. Jeremiah said, God said, you will, you're trying to seek me. You will seek me. You will find me when you seek me with all your heart. The whole heart is always God's standard, including our generosity. Here's the next thing. Generosity that leaves a legacy will be a humble generosity. A humble generosity. We didn't, we didn't read the rest of, of, of chapter 29, but something really cool starts to happen around verse 14. David begins to pray this prayer of, of praise and a prayer of, of thanksgiving to God because they had been given the privilege of giving to the mission. They were so floored 
that they had the privilege of giving, a, a worship service just starts to break out around them. I want you to look at what he says in verse 14. He says, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. David said, who in the world are we that we get the privilege of giving? I'm just so humbled at the reality that God invited us to be generous in this moment. And listen, he basically said, all of this comes from the Lord. Every, all these things come from you and of your own have we given to you. He was basically saying, none of this is ours. None of this is ours. Now, we love that language in this room. But we have to fight our flesh to live that out outside of this room. Consider for a moment the humility required to be able to say, nothing I've worked for, nothing I've been paid to do, Nothing I feel like I've earned is actually mine. Romans 11 says all things that we have come from God. And they exist for God. And they are returning to God. Right? David simply said, I can't. they were humbled at the reality that somehow it would please God for them to give back to God what already belonged to God. You ever had somebody re-gift something to you? You ever had that joy? <laughs> they gave you something and you're like, I know. Meemaw gave you this for Christmas last year. You cheat. <laughs> right? You ever have somebody give you something that you gave them? <laughs> that feels good, doesn't it? They put it in your hand, and all of a sudden, your filter has to activate so you don't shame them at Christmas on Jesus' birthday, and you're going, I am going to smack you in public. Look at this. I gave this to you last year. What's wrong with you? Right? Generosity that leaves a legacy is humbled at the reality that it pleases God for us to give back to Him what already belongs to Him. It requires humility for you to understand. Everything I have, I have because it was gifted to me. And what God calls me to give, I get to re-gift back to him. But he don't handle it the way I handled it. He loves it. He loves it. It's a humble generosity. Here's the next thing. Generosity that leaves a legacy is a generational generosity. It's generational. Look at verse 15. David says, for we are strangers before you. And sojourners, as all our fathers were, and our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. I'm going to just stop there. David said, we're sojourners here, right? We're passing through this time and this, this place and this moment in history. We're like a shadow. We don't abide. We're not going to be here long. And because the days are short, the time is now. The time is now. This was about investing in a legacy for the glory of God's name and for the building of his kingdom that would endure long after David was dead. Do you realize it took him seven years to build the temple? You know what that meant? 
David, along with a whole bunch of other people, gave to something they never stepped foot in. How many of God's people died in those seven years? I don't know. But I know the Bible says all the people gave. Many of them to something they would never see completed. Why? Because generational generosity does not ask the question, what can I keep? How can I be comfortable? How can I feel secure? Generational, ask the, generational generosity asks the question, what can I leave? What can I live without? So that the glory of God's name is dwelling with the next generation. I'm not going to abide. I'm not. You know, look at Psalm 34, verse 4 and 5. David says, God, you got to help me remember my life is a breath and that's it. That's all I've got. Which means I better be investing in what does abide and what will endure. It's generational. It's, 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 it's looking further than this moment. I want to give for what God's going to do for the, us. Next 25, 30 years. For them, the next 400 years. Here's the last thing. Generosity that leaves a legacy is a joyful generosity. We've touched on this several times, but if you go back to verse 9, the Bible says the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. Look at the end of verse 17. David's in this prayer. And look at what he says. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. This is a reality that is consistent all the way across God's word. And it is a reality that goes 100% in the opposite direction of how we are wired to think in this culture. Culture says real joy is in having. It's in getting. Joy is, is feeling secure. It's in getting more stuff. Joy is, is when I have more than I could ever need. And God's word says joy is actually in giving generously. Joy is actually in sacrificing. Not because I have to. Because I'm willing to. Freely. With a whole heart. I mean, think about what was the aftermath of this moment of inexplicable generosity that broke out in God's... What was the aftermath? You think the people gave and they were like, oh man, I think we gave too much. We're in trouble. Oh no. You think there was regret? You think there was uncertainty? You think some of them were going, boy, I know what I gave. They better use my money right. I'm not saying any of you would think that. There was an outbreak of joy. The outbreak of joy was because they realized giving back to God is a privilege. And the joy exploded and the worship exploded. Not The outbreak of joy was not because of how much they gave, but because of how much, but because of what they gave, what it revealed about their heart. And joy just broke out. 
why Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians verse nine, chapter 9, verse 7, that each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a what? A cheerful giver. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because it is impossible to give with gladness and joy and cheer if my heart is not full toward God. It's impossible. Right? Gladness in our generosity pleases the Lord because it is over, it's the overflow of a heart that is full toward Him. Okay. There's a moment. I want to tell you about very quickly. It's back in 1 Chronicles 21. David has this really selfish moment. Remember, we talked about last week, he was the greatest king, but he was a, he was a failure at some things, being a husband, being a dad, not, right? And at times, he failed the whole nation. In 1 Chronicles 21, David takes a census of the fighting men. And he takes this census because he wants to know how great his army is, how strong his nation is, and he wants a, it's kind of a pound my chest moment, right? Look how, look how great we are. And despite warnings from godly men who are with him saying, King, don't do this. Don't, this is not going to please the Lord. He did it anyway. And when he did it, God sent a pestilence into the land as a judgment for that sin, essentially to say, you think all your strength comes from an army? I'll just start taking the army away from you. And the prophet Gad, an angel came to Gad and said, you got to go to David and tell him to repent. Because if he doesn't, God's, this, will not, this pestilence will not relent. So Gad goes to David and he says, David, you have to repent. And you're to go to a, a threshing floor on the side of a mountain. By the way, this place where God is sending David to repent is the exact place where the temple would ultimately be built. You're to go up there, and this property is owned by a man named Arana. Arana is a Jebusite. His name is also translated as Ornon. It's the same guy. He's a Jebusite. And you were to go buy his property, his threshing floor. You were to buy everything, and you were to make an altar and repent. So David goes as he's walking up the side of this mountain. Arana sees his king coming, and he He's a faithful servant. He runs out to his king. The Bible says he gets on his face before David. and goes, okay, what are you doing here? What, what's going on? Why are you here? David said, I need to buy your property and I need to buy your threshing floor. Because I've got to repent. I've got to make an offering to God. And Arana, just with a heart that loved David, goes, oh, you can have it. Take the property. It's yours. That threshing floor that grinds the wheat for my family and all my people can have it. Break it apart and burn the wood. You can have it. You see those oxen, king, that are turning that stone wheel to grind that wheat? You kill them. Make them your sacrifice. Everything I have, I give to you. And David goes, no. He said, Arona, I have to pay full price for it. Because I cannot sacrifice to the Lord my God something that costs me nothing. Mm 
It's a powerful story. And I believe that reality was echoing in his heart in 1 Chronicles 29 at the end of his life when he gave everything that he had. I can't offer to God something that didn't cost me. If it doesn't cost me anything, it's not a sacrifice, which means it's not a proper offering. God is calling us new beginnings to begin to open our hearts to questions that are hard for our flesh to wrestle with. What does sacrificial generosity look like for me? And how do I do it with joy, humility, willingly, with a whole heart, above and beyond? God, show me how to do this. Lord, I love you and I thank you for the power of your word. And God, I thank you for the example that you have set for us of generosity. You gave all that you had in Jesus and you purchased us. You ransomed us back to yourself. All that we have is yours. Holy Spirit, begin to work in our heart to respond to you in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.